Y'all ready for this? Episode 7, Solving Healthcare Quadcast coming at you. Bing. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Quedro Caramante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Ladies and gentlemen, we are already on episode seven of Solving Healthcare. This has been quite the dance. Keep sending your feedback to quadcast99 at gmail.com. It's been tremendous. This episode is an exciting one, but first I want to tell you about our sponsor, Medical Scribes of Canada. This is led by two outstanding individuals, Stephen Graves, future upstart, finishing his Master's of Quality Improvement at Queen's, and his dad, Peter Graves, who has 25 years of experience as an emergency room physician, they have established a group of scribes that can improve your work environment, your work efficiency, and most importantly, the patient experience. So if your organization is looking to improve on any of the above, please contact them at medicalscribesofcanada.ca. These guys are ballers. Okay, I do not know how to put how awesome this episode is, except for maybe describing it as straight up gangster. Okay. Today we interviewed Dr. Adrian Matheson, child psychologist, who has got over eight years of experience and is extremely knowledgeable, a great human being, and has made a huge impact on many kids and families' lives. And she on this episode is providing insights on how we basically got to stop messing up our kids. Okay. How all of us have seen this increase in anxiety, depression, childhood suicide, more ADHD diagnosis. And a lot of it is based on what we do as parents. And on this episode, she really illustrates what we're doing and how we could change how we can make our kids better, how we can make them more resilient, how we can make them more creative and have a brighter future. So whether you've got a family now or you're planning to have one, this is the episode for you. So without further ado, Dr. Adrian Matheson. This is very exciting. Welcome, Adrian Matheson. To Solving Healthcare podcast. How are you feeling? <laughs> I'm really excited. Oh, me too. I, I really am, actually. I'm like uh, genuinely very honored uh, and excited to be a part of this. I've heard the other episodes and I'm like nervous to be able oh, to no, step no. up my game to those other guests. No, you, it's I'm, been an awesome podcast. Oh, I've loved listening to it. I appreciate it. I know I paid you at least $45 yeah, for that one. I asked for 50 Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm quite cheap. Actually, <laughs> we are in her office yes. in Ottawa here. And I got to tell you, this is some swank facility. Like, yeah. you're, you're really all grown up. Adrian. I know. It's a big like deal. It's, it's like uh, the real deal. And you're expanding. Yes, we are expanding. Yeah. So we have currently, I guess, about four people on our team and we're tripling our space yeah. uh, in Ottawa at our office here. 
Um, and it's really exciting. Like, yeah. Our, yeah, there's there's a huge need, which is why I'm excited to talk about it, because that's part of the um, biggest challenge that we have is being able to absorb the number of families that are needing service and support. Absolutely. So maybe before getting into what you do, yeah. do, you, do you remember how we met? <laughs> I was actually thinking about it, Quadjo, because there's so many early memories. Yes. We've actually known each other for a very long time. I believe my sister was even at the bar oh. where you worked <laughs> when you met your now wife. Yep. Uh, so I wasn't there to to witness all of that. But I one of my earliest memories is being in Fernie, BC, yes. during a hockey game 2002 Olympics okay, thank you what? yeah I knew you would know and it was Canada and US oh it was Canada and US Salt Lake City. okay uh I remember very well being in Fernie we had lots of time there but the other memory that I have was when you and your wife were moving to Ottawa oh my goodness and you asked me, you were coming for residency and she was coming for grad school, and you asked me to tour some apartments for you. Oh, Do you I remember totally that? forgot about yeah. that. Yeah, we would have ended up in some uh, like dodgy ass areas, I think, if uh, we weren't all over that. Yeah. The place that I looked at had like a pool on the roof. Oh, really? Yeah, you didn't end up in the place I looked at, but, you know, that's fine. It's <laughs> <laughs> fine. Maybe you had other people looking at other places yeah. that you went with. No, so I remember that. I remember driving you to your interviews oh, for residency snap. in my little Mazda. Yeah, the Mazda I remember three. that very well because you stayed with us during your interviews. Yeah. For residency. So no, it's been a long, it's been a long time. It, it, it has been a long time mm -hmm. and it's been like legit. We wouldn't be in this city. I don't think if it wasn't for you. I know. You know I take full uh, credit. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And um, now it's fun because now. our boys are yes. in the same class. Yes. Bronson and Teddy. Yeah. Uh, You're known as Teddy's dad in my house. Is that right? Yeah. And Teddy and Bronson are in direct competition. I'm not sure if you're aware of this to nope. be the fastest in grade two. Okay. Unfortunately, it's currently going to Teddy. Okay. Well, I have him on a program. I don't know if you know that. <laughs> I know. I need to know the program. We got, we got, we got <laughs> protein shakes going on. We got resistance training. <laughs> it's never too early, guys. Yeah. He apparently is the fastest kid in grade two. Nice. It drives Bronson nuts. What's up, Teddy? Yeah, Good we're job, working my on boy. it. <laughs> actually, I should be careful. I don't know if it, anything I'm saying will affect his development. Right. Speaking I can tell you. Which, yeah, I can tell you lots of, of things that you're doing that are affecting his development. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen I've seen you parent, but I've also seen your wife parent. And so I think they're going to be just fine. Oh, my goodness. It's going to be fine. I'm regretting this decision <laughs> by the minute. Okay, Adrian. Yes. Tell the viewer. Yes. What is it? What's it like being a child psychologist? What is a day in the life sure. of Adrian Matheson? So uh, I think the answer differs on where you work. Uh, and I have worked in different... For you, though. I'm okay, for, for me. Yeah. So I work uh, only in private practice. I'm fully in private practice, and this is my clinic. So um, for me, at the moment, most of my day is still filled clinically where I see several families every day. Um, and I now, because my team is growing and my clinic is growing, I also do uh, a lot of supervision and consultation um, and 
triage in terms of referrals of where we're going to who who is the best person on our team to support the family so my my job is also quite administrative at the moment but for the most part my day it consists of families reaching out to us for support i meet with first the parents on their own um, to get a really good sense of what's going on um, and from there we develop a plan Sometimes that plan means I work only with the parents and I never meet the child. Sometimes I don't ever see the parents again other than very brief check-ins. And this space is solely reserved for the child that I'm seeing. That's typically for teenagers, if, it, if that's the case. Uh, and then we go from there. We, we kind of work together uh, as, the, as me as the clinician and the family to sort out what we're working on, what we're needing, what's working, what's not working. And sometimes that goal shifts and changes over time. Hmm. Um, and that's, yeah, that's how I spend my yeah. day. So it sounds like quite variable in nature. You're yeah. seeing all kinds of cases yeah. Yeah. dealing with moms and dads and the kids. Yeah. So in your experience, where do you see some of the problems, like overarching problems in the healthcare system regarding, you know, um, families and, and, and children? So uh, I think that I can speak to that on both a macro and a micro level. So looking at it more broadly, which I think relates specifically to what you're doing in your podcast, mm. is access to early mental health. Mm. Um, that's the biggest problem that we have. Uh, myself, for example, I'm not accepting anybody new. Uh, I could open my email right now and probably have five emails just this morning looking for support. Um, and that's not something that I'm able to provide. And I know my colleagues who are working in this community or also in other provinces. I've worked in, in Vancouver and in BC uh, and I've worked in Edmonton and the problem is a national problem. Um, this is not specific to Ottawa or to Ontario. So access to mental health, early mental health. And I'll talk what early means for us here in our clinic. Um, your, you spoke with a psychiatrist earlier and she talked about the importance of um, early mental health. But like when I say early, I'm talking like zero to five, mm. the really little ones. And also school age children and teenagers as well. But like we need more support uh, and more accessibility to service. Wow. So where is the problem there? Because... You know, I would imagine if there's a, an area where there's high demand that, you know, we would train more psychologists or uh, our counselors. So w where's the problem lying that we can't meet demand? Um, I think there's two problems. One is we graduate very few clinical psychologists. So the pool of being able to access uh, clinicians is small. That's as a business owner running this clinic, that's my number one challenge. It's not getting the clients. It's not finding the space. It's not providing good service. We're ready. Um, but we, we really, and I know my colleagues are in the same boat as the, as, as we are, um, in other practices as well across the city is accessing the new graduates, um, and, and working psychologists to be able to, uh, do the work and see these families. Um, that's one problem. Uh, the other problem is funding. So mm. we are in private practice here. We still have a wait list. It's a very expensive service. 
Um, you could even discuss it as a luxury good at this point. Uh, mental health services are for people uh, that can afford it, that can get here and wait, you know, mm. six months to be seen. Um, so those two issues I think really impact our ability to service mental health in, in the community. And maybe speak to what kind of, like we're, we're talking about costs and wait times, but yeah. like what kind of costs are we talking about? So the Ontario Psychological Association recommends psychologists charge out at $225 an hour. Um, I know of clinicians in this community that charge out at six, uh, sorry, at 260 an hour. Uh, that's primarily in the adult uh, world. And I have colleagues who are charging out at 225 an hour. Mm -hmm. That's where we're moving is to 225 an hour currently for, for you to come in here for an hour of service with your child or for parenting support. It's going to cost you $200 for mm -hmm. that hour. And you're going to wait. I mean, here, I'm as I say, I'm not accepting anybody new. Mm -hmm. uh, so there is no wait. There's just there, you know, I have to refer out to my team, uh, but I would say typically a, a, a reasonable wait time is about six months for private. Wow. Yeah. And that's much longer in the public sector. Right. Right. And before I, I, I don't want to forget about talking about. Yes. Uh, some of these clinical scenarios where people are waiting, because it's not like like some of these conditions could be pretty dire from our previous conversation but you, what about some of the uh, like and uh the costs associated with doing some analysis like uh, I, yeah yeah actually, actually i should speak to that so here in our clinic and most psychology clinics we do that we do both intervention and assessment so intervention is therapy uh where we are developing a therapeutic plan and we're supporting families therapeutically with something that they're experiencing. And I can talk about what that is. The other um, way that we service families is through psychological assessments. Those range around $2,900 for a, like a psychoeducational assessment. Wow. The reason for that is it takes a lot of hours mm -hmm. and our hours are expensive. And so uh, it, you know, it becomes very expensive. Yeah. And I, the reason I, I really wanted to point that out is, is because this could be prohibitive for so many people that would benefit from the, these kind of assessments. Absolutely. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to spend like what I'm really, really hoping to point out to your listeners is the importance of early intervention mm. um, and as a preventative, protective uh, variable for healthy development, lifelong development. And what I'm talking about here in the private sector is, is really impossible for most of the population to be able to access. These are families, most of the families that we see in those types of assessments have insurance. Mm -hmm. They have extended health insurance. In fact, most of the families we see here generally are working with extended health insurance. So we will often build plans within that, not necessarily based on uh, best practice or what what uh, the client is needing in terms of clinical care, but based on what the family can afford, yeah. either out of pocket or um, through their insurance. Uh, as an aside, I saw the chief psychologist at the of the Ottawa Carleton District School Board speak. 
And he said, his name is Tim Hogan. He said they will start assessing kids at school. And these are the really high needs kids. Like mm-hmm. if they're being identified at the school and they're able to access the very limited resources that the school system ta- systems have, um, they'll, they'll assess in like grade four. Grade four, I mean, that's, I don't know if that's changed. I mean, I guess I was just going to say, don't quote me on it, but what I'm saying is quoted because uh, I'm saying it. Uh, but uh, that was maybe two years ago, I heard him speak here in Ottawa talking about that. And the previous speaker who they brought in from Oise in Toronto said, you know, we really need to be assessing these kids Like we need to be screening kindergarten children to be able to put the supports in place. That's just not possible in the current system. So what ends up happening is kids hit kind of grade two or grade three. They start struggling behaviorally or academically at school. Families that have the access to resources come to somebody like me and get an assessment done. Intervention gets put in place and those, you know, and intervention works. Mm. Like, for example, a child with a reading disability, there's very effective interventions to support, uh, help, you know, to remedy those challenges. Uh, the, of course, the longer that continues, the bigger problem that it becomes. Mm. Uh, and I could go on and on about those problems because not only academically, but also secondary consequences of like internalizing how this child is feeling about themselves in class, etc. Um, so all of that to say the the need for sort of this global access to mental health services early is not there. It's not there. Yeah. I, I, I want to get a sense or, or clear, uh, some clarity for the listener too. It's like, what, what is this? What is, like, what do these kids look like? Like what are okay. the, these type of kids that you're seeing? And then you've kind of alluded to like what the downstream consequences of sure. not being, not having these interventions or not having these therapies available. Yeah. But I really like black and white. You have a kid with X, Y, Z problem. What does that look like with, with or without help? Okay. So our, I would say our primary referrals here in this clinic are for two main issues. One is anxiety. Uh, We see a huge number of children coming into our clinic with anxiety symptoms Um, and the second is ADHD type symptoms. The criteria for ADHD is hyperactivity, impulsivity, and inattentiveness or distractibility. So those kinds of symptoms, uh, presenting either in the community at home or at school, we get a significant number of referrals for kids who are struggling with those types of symptoms. Um, we can really help kids early on, like kids get better Mm. when, when we put a system in place to support them. My bias as a clinician, um, is that I don't believe, say you have a boy in grade two struggling with ADHD symptoms. I do not believe saying to that boy, Hey, you should focus more or you should sit in your chair more is the answer. I believe that this like putting a system in place to support this child's successful functioning is the answer. We can do that clinically. So I can work with the teachers. I can work with the parents at home. I can do some work with the child as well, but that's more to just buffer their, uh, you know, the secondary consequences, as I mentioned earlier, around self-esteem and self-concept and social problems that often come with these kinds of behaviors. Um, So 
what we can do with intervention is build systems around these children Mm -hmm. so that they are set up for success, not asking them to just change because they would do that if they Mm -hmm. could. I have not met a kid yet that does not want to do well. Kids want to do well. Um, But without that linking with the schools or having proper assessments or having good clinical clinical care, the trajectory for these kids can be really problematic on multiple levels. And like, like I said, this trajectory that's problematic. Walk me through that a little bit more. Well, so for example, I see kids here. I'm thinking of one in particular who uh, is now a teenager, very bright kid, like really, really, really bright. And school is really boring. That's the word I hear a lot. Uh, school is really, really boring and it's just easier to not go. Mm. It's also easier to be funny and to challenge teachers and cause a whole bunch of problems in the classroom than it is to, you know, I'm doing air quotes that are not visible, but (laughs) toe the line, uh, in the classroom and just do what he is supposed to do. That's not going to happen. I have said to him, and I say to myself every time I see him, I wish I got to see you like 10 years ago uh, when we really could kind of shift the support around him. So he didn't take on this persona or he didn't learn to interact with his peers and his teachers in this way to have a need met, Mm -hmm. which is boredom. Um, I wish I could have supported him much earlier on because now he's not going to school at all. Mm. He's smoking a whole bunch of weed. Oh my goodness. Uh, and, uh, and he's now here in my office every once in a while, you know, I'm trying to help kind of look forward, but it's a, it's, you know, I wrote down as I was preparing for this kind of too little, too late. I don't want to make it seem like late and in, later intervention is not, um, you know, helpful. It is. It is helpful. Um, But the adult supports are too little. And in my opinion, as a child psychologist, they are too late. Uh, So yeah, it's just, I think kids who are generally really, really good. I believe kids want to do well, as I said, they, when they struggle either academically or behaviorally, they start to think that they're not smart. And then that impacts their whole way of working in the world. Or they start to think they're a bad kid because that's the feedback that they get all day, every day. And they start to internalize those uh, beliefs. So then we have sort of a mental health issue of internalizing problems where they feel lonely. They feel they have low Mm -hmm. self-esteem. And then they cope with that by doing other stuff that's not functional or. Man, like, so what I'm hearing from you, Adrian, is basically you have somebody that could have like, that we'll use that ADHD example could have been intervened earlier. Yeah. As a result, has all these, you know, uh, maladaptive strategies in life. Yeah. Um, and that example you're giving, yeah. you know, might be he's bored, might move to drugs, and who knows what his adult life is going to look yeah. like. But b- basically, we could have done something early. For, for sure. The number of times that I have parents sitting in my office. Saying, I'm thinking of a dad in particular, a big, strong guy here with his young child, which always gets me because it's just so adorable. Mm. Uh, 
And I was explaining to him what the intervention was going to look like for his child. And he became very emotional, uh, like really emotional, like had to take a break and said to me, where were you 30 years ago? Uh, and I think that's that is where early intervention is pointed out to me always, 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 always when we're giving feedback to parents after an assessment, a parent will say to us, this is so me. I wish I knew this about my learning style. I wish I knew this, that I wasn't a bad kid, but that I struggle with inhibitory control. Yeah. I, you know, I wish I had it framed in this way and I wish I had parents to understand that and support me differently. And now they're not necessarily um, living their adult life in maybe the way they they could have or they would have now that they have this new information coming into my office as a parent. Well, I mean, this is really the real reason why I wanted you on the show. Like, I I know there's a lot of parents out there, kids with anxiety or ADHD, and they're struggling. Yeah. And I've seen it where they get labeled at an early age and, you know, uh, teachers give them a harder time. And knowing that interventions that, I don't know if they're, you could, you could maybe comment to this, whether they're groundbreaking or super effortful, um, can make such a difference. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think what we do here um, is I th- we, we really try to reframe children's behavior mm. as uh, something that they are struggling with and not something that they are doing to be oppositional or... Um, contrary or difficult. Um, I, I, I've said this now a few times, but I can't say it enough. I, I really, truly have a fundamental belief that children want to do well. They tell me that here. Uh, you know, I'll say, why did you punch that kid at recess yesterday? Now you're sitting here in my office. I'll say this to kids all the time. Okay, now you're here. You could be at recess at school. You're not because you punched Johnny at recess. Stop why did you Johnny. do that? And he's like, meh, I don't know. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, like, he doesn't want to punch that other kid. Maybe he does. Some kids tell me other kids are annoying, and that's fine. But, you know, I that my answer to that kid is not stop punching Johnny. The answer and what good intervention is, is, all right, let's sort out what you are needing at recess mm-hmm. to help you with your social interactions. And the intervention could be as simple as, hey, let's send you with a ball to school and then maybe kids will play with you or let's bring Johnny a ball, too, and you guys can figure out a game to play together. It's not groundbreaking intervention, but it's just reshifting how we are thinking of the kid on the on the playground that's punching the other kids. You know, hearing this once again, you know, it's a theme of the podcast of, of how simple measures can go a long way and really wanting to like scale these ideas. I almost wonder, and I'm not trying to take you out of a job, but I wish this was more known, like these little tidbits of information, these reframing, the give, uh, give Johnny that ball so that, uh, you know, Dexter stops punching him in the pelvis. Like all these, (laughs) all these kind of things that, you know, I'm a, I'm a dad of three mm-hmm. and I'm married to a psychologist yes. and I'm, I'm still like, I'm learning here. Yeah. I'm always learning. Yeah. And I just, you know, I wish I had 
access to things like this more often. And I, I could I could guarantee millions of parents out there. Yes. When they're hearing some, they're yes. hearing this now and being yes. like, oh, yeah. Yeah, that, that's, yes. that's something we could do. Yeah. Um, well, exactly. But which come, speaks to your what you are doing in your podcast is, you know, where do they go from there? Yeah. So stay tuned. Plug. <laughs> <laughs> so subtle. That's what we do here. <laughs> we that's what we're creating a podcast for this reason or not a podcast. Uh, what's it called? An online course for this reason. Oh, so that okay. the things that I spend every day, all day talking about to families, which is really inaccessible for most. Uh, and it's expensive and all of these things you can just access online because that family say that's listening to this or they're getting that call from the teacher at school and they're like I don't know where do we go from here and then they call all the child psychology clinics in the city and they're like yeah absolutely we'll see you in the next year or a bedtime meltdown another example because I my my area uh, academically both academically and in my internship kind of clinical early clinical work was zero to five I worked on a, a team where we would only see kids between zero and five um, bedtime is a big issue right you've yeah. got three kids it's like a nightmare it's like a Devils. shock that bedtime comes I love you guys <laughs> so like my email blows up. Every night at around 10 p.m. And I know when I receive these, I'm a parent of three as well. When I receive these emails that they have had a major struggle in their home. And it's, you know, they've reached a point where they're reaching out for help. And we do our best to to support those families. But it, we are limited in what we can do. And the access to service for those families is very limited. Mm. So that's kind of the macro piece that I really want to drive home to your listeners is the, we need more supports early on um, for lots of reasons. But for the biggest reason is it works in mm. preventing later problems, which I can talk about some research on if you would. Yeah, definitely. Hey, <laughs> natural segue. It's all about the natural segue. Well, go, can I go there after, today. though? I, don't, do, I do, Yeah, do I want to go there after. after? Yeah, because okay. I have other stuff I want to say first. Okay, okay. go ahead. You want... Uh, am I, I'm allowed to, to speak? Yeah, good, okay. yeah, go ahead. Um, I don't even know what I want to say now. I, I do want to... I, ha I have something to say. Okay. Uh, we had talked about what the um, primary referrals are uh, that we see here. And mm -hmm. I used the examples of ADHD symptoms. Right. I say ADHD symptoms because ADHD is tossed out like candy. Mm. Right. Like we have to be very cautious around these labels. I'm using it in a very general sense, because often when we assess kids are not meeting criteria for ADHD, sometimes they do, mm. but lots of times they don't. And, and I'm going to talk about why that's the case. Uh, and also anxiety was the example that I gave. Um, and I'm curious to know if you are curious. I am definitely curious. Why we see so many. Why I think. <laughs> I'm sorry, Quadjo. Uh, no, no, I gotta say, I gotta say one thing. Okay, it, go ahead. I'll stop. everybody. I'll stop. No, no, it's great because I did want to jump. Type a personality. I, yeah, yeah. I'm, I gotta tell you. So this is probably my seventh or eighth interview, and Adrian was hands down the most prepared and the most <laughs> well. I was not nervous like right before, but no. nervous like last week. But and the reason like, I was Quadjo is I I think it's really important what you're doing, um, and I just want to do you proud because oh, you're, you're my buddy no you're doing me proud <laughs> like i wouldn't have you on the show otherwise i know you 
number one, amazing work, important work. Yeah. And number two, you know, we're cool. You know, it's, 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 it's nice having you. And I like anybody that we get to be ourselves with is always, I think, a more authentic and lovely interaction. Yeah. I think why I was uh, nervous is because I, I do think it's really cool and I want to um, be as helpful as possible to you and what you're doing. But also there's an opportunity here to really share, um, very important things that could have a huge impact in the mental health world. Um, and, and so I just wanted to make sure I was prepared. So yes, did I hire a research assistant? Yes, I did. (laughs) I did. And (laughs) uh, so my stats are very recent and people they're not saying this but there's like a whole bunch of post-it notes all across this room (laughs) there are i know but it's it's funny to say just for preparation yeah so the the one thing i want well actually you were going to go there anyway but i wanted to say or talk about yes the anxiety the increase in anxiety we're seeing in our children okay so we'll start with anxiety this is a huge well, it's a huge problem, but it's it's a it's a problem that I think we could address and be better at based on our conversation before. Yes. So, speak to us about okay. this. So, uh, following my uh, statement there that my research is on point, I actually uh, am only able to speak to what I think is impacting this increase in anxiety that we see here clinically. Um is several things. And I'll talk about each of them. The first is the increase in screen time. This is not a groundbreaking discussion. This is an issue where it's being well researched. Uh, Lots of people are looking at it. Parents are dealing with it always. How much is too much? What type of screen time is okay? How old should kids? All of these kinds of questions are things that we talk about clinically. Um, But I think where I see the anxiety linking with screen time specifically for like the tweens and adolescent population is around social media mm-hmm. use. So we, um, when we were growing up, we would get a break from the gossip and rumor mill and all the social work that we had to do at school in navigating, you know, the kids on the playground and these social relationships, we got a break. We would go home. There's one phone line. Um, there was no Twitter or Instagram or TikTok. This is the new one. Have you heard TikTok? of TikTok? I, I have no yeah, idea what that that's is. That's the new I'm one. Proud yeah. To know about. I stay up to date because I have yeah, teens have telling me how cool I am not <laughs> <laughs> every day. Like they Adults remind well. me that I'm not saying the right things. Um, but it, it's that, you know, they're so say we have a teen, I'm thinking of somebody in particular, where they are off to their after school activities, mm-hmm. right? But the rumor mill online where the group of friends at school are completely connected instantly with one another is is just churning mm-hmm. constantly. So she's just going about her day, goes to sleep, wakes up the next morning, checks her phone. And it's blown up. There's some awful rumor about her, right? I think, I I know, I know because the kids in my office are telling me this, this is a ton of pressure. There has to be a school persona. There has to be a online persona that they have out there. Uh, There is just this 
heavy, heavy, heavy pressure on kids to always be on. I mean, can you imagine having this when we were I kids? I know. I know. Like, you go to this bush party or whatever in rural Alberta. For us, it was under a bridge. It was called Cement Side. Okay. Yeah. And if, I mean, hopefully nobody reaches out to people and <laughs> the, the listeners, but if any of the stuff I did in high school came out or was on social media. I know. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So I will say, I think I do not think that the schools have caught up yeah. in educating students on the, these things. I think our generation of, uh, although you are older than me, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, are we still the same generation? I don't, I don't know. I don't Probably know. a different not generation. Anymore. Yeah. I, don't know. Um, I think there's a good three or four years there between yeah. us, which is significant. My social insurance number is four. <laughs> yeah, right. 42 actually. Um, so, um, I, I do find that teens in my office are actually quite digitally informed more than we were when, you know, say Facebook first came out where we're just posting it all without any understanding of the implications of that. I do see anecdotally in my office that teens have a general sense of of what goes online. Like being more safe when posting. Yeah. Or like being cognizant. Okay, of well, the, the example I'm giving, I don't know if this is appropriate, but the example I'm giving is like they are sending nudes, right? <laughs> That's the norm. But they know Teens? to not put their face. So when, Yes. Yes. So when I'm talking like educated, there's still a very significant concern that oh is going on here, right? I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I know. I'm having chest pain, actually. I know. I know. Yeah. You'll, well, you'll, you can get on the list and we will see you in six <laughs> months uh, if you are able to pay for it. Uh, so, yeah. So screen use is a really big issue. Uh, I think just because uh, not so much screen use, but the, just the constant... Uh, digital distraction that is there and the pressure that is associated with that. So I'd say that in terms of anxiety, the other thing that I see really increasing levels is over parenting. Now you and I are parents of three kids. Yes. We both have our middle sons in particular who uh, challenge parent ideas Correct. <laughs> um, <laughs> and and that's hard. Everybody everybody is struggling in their own ways in that. But as compared to, again, we're sounding kind of like old people here, but to when we were growing up, we had freedom. We had freedom to explore. We had freedom to walk ourselves to school at earlier ages. We got to run to the neighbors. I remember I biked across town to get mm. to school in elementary school. Um that is no longer the case. The expectations on parents to monitor their children is is increasing constantly. These kids do not have an opportunity to be autonomous and learn and grow and make mistakes and get themselves out of tricky situations. They don't have those opportunities as much uh, as they have in previous generations. And I, I don't know where it's coming from. And... I don't feel anecdotally that it's getting better. You no, know it's not. I, like I, I no, I agree with you. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I mean, we, we, we our kids go to the same school. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't want to call out any parents, but like you see it just walking into the yeah into yeah. the facility at our school. They close the play structure between whatever times before school. Because there is no staff to supervise the children on the play structure. 
So do you remember going on play structures like those wooden ones with the pole that has a hole and, you you know, you go down and you fall down at once and you learn don't go don't near go that hole. So and I, you know, we have a lovely parent community. And when I was at a recent parent meeting and a mom said, well, can't parents just monitor like they're there <laughs> chatting? And then you know what they said? No, they cannot because it's a liability issue. That's... So there are play structures in the schoolyard that the kids are not allowed to go on because of safety concerns. So yes, they're anxious. Like kids are anxious that they they do not have space to do very developmentally appropriate is one thing, but important mm. things like physically explore. Um, that is very, very important. Kids learn through play. That That's very well documented in the literature. Play is very important. Gross motor development, cognitive development, social development, like they need free play. And that's just not possible. Also, our school, which I do love, by the way, if anyone's listening, uh, <laughs> is they close it. They close the playground when it's icy. Like these are Canadian children. They need to walk on ice. <laughs> yes. You, you, this is part of being Canadian. Right. So then you you have a kid who has learned. To, this is a very, very kind of superficial example. But you have a child that hasn't learned to walk on ice and then they go out into the world and surprise, <laughs> there's ice. And, you know, they the coping skills or the resiliency, I think, is really impacted by this over parenting uh, that that and that we are required to do as parents. Um yeah. Required. We are required. So I'll give you an example on that. Uh, personal example. Two, actually, two personal examples. So my middle son, who I adore, uh, who uh, challenges authority, uh, always climbs. He climbs. And it gives me a heart attack. I get it. All of the, you know, possible outcomes are running through my head. It is very rare for me to be at a playground where my son hasn't ended up somewhere very high up. And I am not approached by a parent, a concerned parent saying, you know, do you have an idea that your kid is like on top of this thing? I do have an idea that my kid is on that thing yeah. and I could keep him home or I could argue with him the whole time we're at the park or I let him roam within obviously appropriate and developmentally appropriate boundaries and let him learn to kind of climb that tree or climb that play structure in a way that it, maybe it's not necessarily built to be climbed, but it, it's something he's learning and he's gets to be more creative. Yeah, get that resiliency. Yeah, yeah. like this yeah. is what we need our kids to be doing. Another example, also in my community, was uh, two kids. They were seven and nine. They had helmets on. They were brother and sister. It was summertime. They were riding their bikes from our house back to their house, kind of just you know, on a weekend afternoon uh, and a police cruiser pulled up to my home. We were in the driveway uh, <laughs> and he said, we have a call. Somebody has called that there are some kids, you know, riding their bike on the street. And 
we said to him, is that not, a, first of all, we were like, they're not our kids. So oh. phew, this time. Are you sure though? <laughs> I'm pretty sure. Well, they're not mine. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I can't speak for everybody. Uh, but they, I said to the police officer, you know, is, are they not allowed to ride? Like, is it, is there actually a rule around this? Uh, and he said, I don't know. Somebody called. I have no idea what they're supposed to do. But the point is, I felt and my threshold of safety as a parent uh, and everybody has different thresholds that I felt what they were doing was safe and appropriate. Um, yet there there is this feeling that even at seven and nine with helmets on on, you know, bikes, that that's not a safe thing to do in the summer. This is the thing that drives me crazy about this is one like it's 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 annoying. Mm-hmm. Number one, uh, just in general, Um Number two, people do not realize what you're doing to the kids. Mm-hmm. Like you are taking away their ability to be resilient. You're taking away their um, ability to cope or increasing their likelihood of being anxious and, and having uh, that as a, as a part of their uh, uh, psyche. And this sounds stupid, but even like taking their creativity away, like they're young minds. This is what you're, you're supposed to do as a kid. Yes explore be creative mm-hmm. and like this might sound like a non sequitur too but like this upcoming generation when we got more kind of like this is a non sequitur like like more kind of artificial intelligence going to be like more remedial jobs are are going to be taken over by whatever machines and whatnot we need our kids to enhance their creativity mm-hmm. enhance their resilience you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I and do. And we're taking that away because of our angst. Yeah. yeah. Like, that's bullshit. Yeah. Well, and so I will say, I will say that w- the kids that I see here uh, that I am talking about in these cases around kind of social media or their, their that our societal level of overparenting, um, though that does contribute absolutely to their anxiety. I also do see kids here with a predisposition to anxiety. Uh, and, and it, you know, parents are like the parents I'm seeing are a trend. I'm thinking of some as I'm, you know, imagining them listening to this, pushing their kids to explore and climb the tree and get out there and their kids are unable to do that. So it is a real thing, anxiety. But what I am seeing clinically is there is this sort of burst that's happening that I think is based on environmental influences rather than very real uh, predispositions to to anxiety symptoms. Yeah, this is why we're talking about it. That's right. And I have one more. Yeah. Okay. So for anxiety, uh, the other thing I need to get on my soapbox about is overscheduling. Yes. Okay. Kids are like, holy smokes. It's nuts there with all the extracurriculars. And again, this is because there is an expectation of, of, I don't know, like they're missing out if they're not doing these activities at the age of four. And, and they are, that's kind of the truth because that is the norm now to be in all of these different activities and the arts and sport and, uh, uh, academic uh, additional academic support. There's just this uh, this crazy amount of scheduled activities that kids are in because, again, I'm talking kind of at a macro level. Parents, I feel it for sure. I feel it. A pressure to make sure we are keeping up 
with all the other stuff that every all the other kids are doing. That's it. I also wonder if it's just a like not letting your kids be bored. Like I, I can speak to my kids. Like when they are restless, yeah, the house is being destroyed. Yes, you know, like we're talking about middle yeah. child. Like even I, just, I wrote down this story about. Marlo, he was maybe, I don't know, maybe 16 to 18 months. This boy would throw knives. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like he would be around the dishwasher and bored, mm-hmm. like a kid's supposed to do. He sees us around, grab what, whatever in the dishwasher. So he'd be like, grabs a knife. He'd be like, no, stay still. Don't do it. Like, stop. And once you start going towards him, he's like, I'm going to get rid oh, of the this evidence. Looks good. Yeah. I'm going to chuck that knife. Um, Anyway, yeah. I don't know how I got into that. No, it but, is. Um, there is. There absolutely. Kids are struggling <laughs> with. I hear it from kids. I would. I, I genuinely do not believe I'm exaggerating when I hear kids say that they are bored. Usually, and this kind of brings us into the ADHD topic. Um, usually, it's for kids who are here because there have been concerns around these ADHD type symptoms, which, as I said before, are impulsivity, distractibility, and hyperactivity. Those kids always tell me they're bored. Mm. So they come up with stuff like grabbing knives, say, <laughs> from from the dishwasher or climbing the tree at the park to make things more interesting. But unfortunately, which bring, loops us to kind of the screen time piece, is it's much easier to allow for them to have increased screen time um, because letting them go out and roam isn't an option. Mm. Parents are also working. You know, many families have two working parents, so they're all really busy and can't necessarily uh, support kids in the same way that maybe previous generations were able to. So we have other ways of filling this boredom time which is really robbing them of the experience, which is either booking them an extracurricular, putting them in front of a screen or something, or like being, no, I'm not going to say that because it is important to be with them and play with them. So I don't want that to be misconstrued, but that they don't have the opportunity necessarily to just have free play time and use their creativity, which again, I cannot emphasize enough is not my opinion. It is like very uh, backed in the literature that children need this opportunity to be creative and play and create and be bored Mm -hmm. so that when they're adults and they're bored, they have adaptive coping skills to handle that and to fill that time in, in ways that are healthy for them Mm -hmm. rather than unhealthy ways Mm -hmm. like excessive screen use or, you know, other things, substances that would help cope with that. Well, that's it for part one of our conversation with Dr. Adrian Matheson. Please join us next week for part two. I hope you enjoyed it. Send your comments to quadcast99 at gmail.com. You can follow us at Twitter at quadcast. Also like our Facebook page, which is also called quadcast. And um, check out the work we're producing uh, research-wise on resourceoptimizationnetwork.com. We also have some links to some of the parenting books Dr. Matheson recommends, so you can see that on the show notes. And uh, I look forward to hearing from you guys, and stay tuned next week. Peace. Take care, everybody.